Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. You're listening to a show that is all about ideas, about the search for wisdom and knowledge through conversation. My guests all have something to say and have the credentials to say it persuasively. Here, the conversation continues. Thank you for joining me for the latest episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Ben Crenshaw, PhD candidate at Hillsdale College's Van Andel School of Statesmanship and author of the recent article, Debating Christian Nationalism at the American Reformer. I had the privilege of meeting Ben at two different conferences last year and really enjoyed his presentation at ISI's American Politics and Government Summit. Ben, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Hey, Josh. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm really glad that we were finally able to make this work. I know we've been uh, we've been trying for this for for a little bit. Um, well, before we get into all the all the politics stuff, um, tell us a little about you and how you got to Hillsdale and uh, anything you want to say about the doctoral program there. Give us give us your pitch. Yeah, I've I've been at this doctoral program since 2019. I um, I'm in my fifth year, so I'm a candidate. I'm writing my dissertation, um, which is going well, but you know slowly. Um, a lot of work, a lot of research. Uh, and of course, I picked a topic that's, uh, you know, 18th century Massachusetts political thought, which brings with it all of the uh, Puritan heritage. And so I'm like deep into uh, 17th century Puritan political thought, which could eat up the rest of your life if that's the only <laughs> thing you wanted to do. So, but anyway, I've, I've been at Hillsdale since 2019. Um, I uh, was at seminary before that. My wife and I lived out in Denver when I went to Denver Seminary and did a a couple of degrees there in New Testament biblical studies and Christian philosophy of religion and ethics. Um, And then before that, I was at undergrad at Taylor University in Indiana, where I studied history. Um, And before high school, I worked in finance um, and farming. And then after seminary, I did a, a two-year stint with, with the seminary there and marketing and communications. Um, but I've, I figured out pretty quick being in seminary that I was not fit for pastoral ministry. That just wasn't my giftings and wasn't a calling. Um, and that I actually would be quite poor in the pulpit. Um, I'm much better in the academic so, uh, field, so I, I kind of went switched over my MA uh, the MDiv to an MA and, um, and then began looking for a PhD. And what brought me to Hillsdale was that I had done my, um, um, one of my master's thesis in seminary was on uh, Roman emperor worship and how the early Christian communities in the first century kind of navigated the Roman empire. So kind of this religion and politics, Christianity and, and empire, Christianity in the public square. Uh, very interested in, in that, the, the, confluence of uh you know culture and politics and religion and economics and had been involved you know just in in american political stuff since i was a teenager um very interested followed along with all of that so i had looked for after seminary i had looked for a phd in say like political theology because i was like let's let's do christianity and politics and i couldn't find anything i looked everywhere not just in america but overseas even in South Africa and all kinds of places, uh, trying to find a person or a program who I could study with that would fit my interest. And I think the closest I came to was Elizabeth Phillips in Cambridge, hmm. but it still just wasn't, it really, it wasn't a program built for what I was looking for. And so then I decided, well, I will just do, I'll try a straight PhD in politics or political science. So I picked a couple of conservative schools here and the U.S. and got into Hillsdale, and I've uh, been doing that since. So Hillsdale is great because um, I mean I could, I could go on for a long time about about this, so don't mm-hmm. so stop me, cut me off if I <laughs> if I drone on too long. But um, so Hillsdale was founded as a Christian school by Freewell Baptists in 1844. Um, it's always kind of been somewhat in practice non-denominational, um, you know, very Baptists uh, bent for a long time. But it has, you know, uh, the pursuit of uh, religious knowledge um, it, right there in its charter. I think it's like Article 4, Article 6. So it's been a religious school its whole uh, life and even is so today. The vast majority mm-hmm. um, of students are Protestant or Catholic. 
So there's been a, there's kind of a reputation that Hillsdale, it is a politically conservative school that does a lot of political action type of stuff, but it's actually also a very religious school. Um, and so it was very warm and inviting to mm-hmm. religion, to a Protestant like me who wanted to study politics in the Western and American tradition, but it didn't have a denominational stance. So it wasn't like Westminster where it's Presbyterian and you're going to get kind of Westminster confession type of Christianity. And so it, it wasn't confessional or creedal like that, um, even though probably now that the chapel's been built, it's more Anglican than anything else, um, which is weird. I mean, sure, a lot of Baptists are turning in their graves right now that there's like an Anglican chapel on campus. But um, Well, I'll just point out that I mean, Hillsdale decided about, uh, in I think it was 2015, 2016, when they publicly identified as a Christian college. So there, there's been a lot of public effort to go back to those charter documents um, since then, I mean, there was a, there's a good probably uh, 50, 60, maybe longer year span in Hillsdale's history when they were really not anything terribly unique, but the, right. the core pieces were there for, for a revival and a, a, a renewal. Um, I want to kind of go back to, I, I'm really interested. Uh, you, you said there were not, you could not find a program that was studying Christianity and politics. Um, uh, tell us a bit more about why that would be, because it, that seems like there's there should be a program for that. Like those two things should belong together. I mean, Christianity has a lot to say about politics and has been married together with politics for well over a thousand years in the Western tradition. And we're most countries run as far away from that as they can today. But I would think that would be a matter of substantial academic study. So why, why are there no programs in that? Oh, that's a really good question. Um I mean, a lot of the programs were first and foremost uh, theological programs. So I thought about studying with Richard Mao and Fuller, who did a joint mm-hmm. program with um, the university, Maine University in Amsterdam. Um, it's kind of this international joint thing. Um, but it was really a theological program that then kind of stuck on some political modules or something like that. Um, and so it was studying, it was always studying politics from a theological angle as opposed to like say an Aristotelian approach to politics, which is kind of a reflection or rumination on our natural tendencies or natural habits or what we can know about ourselves through observation and reason and experience and so forth. Not to say that Aristotle doesn't have a divine science. He does. I mean, he's at the end of the ethics and the politics, you know, he clearly wraps in contemplation of the divine as being the highest thing and the highest end of man. Um, but there was, there was always, it always started with what can we know about politics from a previous theological tradition? Um, and it was always very denominational. Uh, Why is that? I mean, it's, it's part of it is a strength, like a very clear and purposeful and intentional Christian and theological identification. Um, and to say like, we're not just kind of spiritual, but not religious or something like that. You know, it's not that. So, so in, in a sense, it's a strength, but it also ends up being a barrier because it prevents Christians from asking questions that they would otherwise ask, like, how could you ground a political order if you didn't presume the Christian God? What would you do? And we're actually in that situation right now in America, kind of a neo-pagan situation, which leaves Christians kind of floundering because we've taken Christianity for granted for so long. We don't know how to think about and Mm -hmm. act kind of pragmatically and say a friend enemy distinction and a non-Christian world. Um, And so Christians either don't ask those questions or they don't know how to give a non kind of biblically prescriptive answer to certain questions Mm -hmm. um, or a certain like, uh, you know, prescriptions for law and so forth. Now, actually the, the uh, you know, the, the, the Protestant tradition um, is, is not as anemic or helpless as a lot of modern Christians are. They were able to think quite reasonably and naturally about man's political and social nature and the end of government and so forth as Christians, but without, um, you know, without having to just find a verse in a chapter. Um, and so I think, I think part of it is maybe uh, uh, a decay of our um, kind of historic understanding of confessional Protestantism, at least, you know, I'm I'm talking about Protestants. I won't speak for Catholics. 
Um, they actually do have a, a quite a robust political, social, um, you know, philosophy and ethics. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, that that accounts for some of it. I'm sure you could go on for longer. No, that's, that's I, I think it's just fascinating. I've, I've thought a lot about in the last couple of years about to what extent we uh, do or do not have a, a Christian orientation towards politics. And I've at least found myself being uh, kind of frustrated. Frustrated is a strong word, but uh, at least less satisfied with, in my circles, and kind of evangelical Southern Baptist land. Uh, we tend to focus on bounce between either sort of a uh, maybe a, a rabid kind of uh, political engagement um, or sort of a pietistic ignoring of politics and just shushing all kind of political discourse. We don't have a great framework through which to view politics. And so uh, that was honestly one of the things I found most interesting at your, your presentation at ISI last year, because you you took us back to a different era in American discourse. And you were looking at, I was really intrigued then and still am now about this different moment where American theologians were and politically engaged folks were thinking theologically, both were able to really kind of cooperate in a profound way. So uh, Ben, could you take us back to that paper and sort of summarize what were you doing in that paper at, at ISI way, way back um, eight months ago now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was back in February. It, it does feel like an age ago. But um, so, yeah, I was, I was at the ISI conference, which was kind of the conservative um, break away from the uh, political science, the APA, what is it, the APSA, uh, mm -hmm. American Political Science Association that kicked Claremont out and it was this whole controversy. So they, ISI put on a conference more for conservatives and it was really great. And I was on a, a, a panel on Christian nationalism because, you know, Stephen Wolf wrote a book and uh, and uh, Andrew Isker and, and Andrew Torbo wrote a book on Christian nationalism, and it's, we've been talking about it a lot in America. So I gave a little paper uh, just called Christian Nationalism at the American Founding. And, you know, I start off with, like, uh, John Adams in, in his letter to the Massachusetts militia in 1798 talking about how our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people. And, you know, a lot of people love to quote this because it just sounds so beautiful, and they're like, therefore you know, insert whatever thing you're arguing for. Well, I, I actually, I started with the quote and then I said, well, okay, what, what was he, what do you mean by that? And so then my, my paper or my presentation kind of unfolded in three parts. And that was um, that America and at the time of the founding was basically a Christian people collectively. Um, and by Christian, mostly Protestant. Mm -hmm. um, but it was not a religious kind of free-for-all or pluralism as we think about it today. And then the second thing I've touched on is that the political institutions, the laws, and the moral principles of America at the time of the founding were grounded in Christianity, either known through reason or revelation. And then the third part I dealt with kind of cultural Christianity or Christian cultural mores and how these were uh, evidenced. So I'll just kind of, I'll just run through these really quickly. So the first part about a Christian people, I was really uh, tackled the um, thesis, the recent thesis in the last 30, 35 years by Rodney Stark and Roger Fink, along with others, that, um, you know, basically religion in 1776 at the revolution or later at the time of the Constitution was essentially dead, that probably only 10, maybe 12, up to later they revised this to up to 20 percent of colonists in 1776 were members of a church. Or so they called these churched individuals and so this seems really low and then of course they they had a book that came out in 2005 um i think it was called the churching of america mm -hmm. yeah the churching of america 1776 to 2005 mm -hmm. and they talk about okay this is how we have so much growth religious growth and uh and witness and denominational growth in the 19th century because basically uh, maybe a fifth of the people were actually churched at the time of the founding. It was kind of a secular time. And then we had this massive explosion of religion in the 19th century. Um, and this is where we get the idea of a, a kind of a Christian America. It's a later 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon, but not so much the founding. So I went back and I was actually like, I, I, I think that their assessment was incorrect. And I won't go through kind of the technical details and some of the mistakes they make, but consider something like this. Uh, in 1775 or 76, if we just want to break down kind of the religious 
uh, statistics, there were around um, 3,228 congregations of all types in the colonies. Uh, of those, um, about 98% were Protestant, and then 1.7% were Roman Catholic, and 0.2% were Jewish. So there were only, of those 3,228, there were only 56 congregations that were Roman Catholic and five synagogues that were Jewish. So huge amounts of Protestants, a Protestant country, a Protestant people by far. And that actually has a lot to do with the, pol the actual politics, the mode of politics, the understanding of politics, the implementation of like the Declaration, how it was written, because the Declaration, I think, was written as a, as a covenant. It comes right out of the Puritan political tradition. Um, and then the Constitution itself, bicameral legislature, representation, separation of powers, limited government, all of this was hab were habits within Protestant political people. So it's easy to, to think about these things in a very kind of secular or enlightened way because that's how they're taught to us in grade school or in high school. But when you go back and you, and you actually study, and you look at the political experience and practice of the colonists, you find they're doing all of these things. And you don't just like, a people doesn't just wake up one day and say, hey, we're going to declare independence and then boom, we're going to have representation or boom, we're going to have a bicameral legislature. Or, you know, it's like these things just don't pop into existence. There's already a long standing tradition there and it's, it's very Protestant in, in its nature. So the first part of my presentation was kind of combating this uh, secularist uh, interpretation of the religious kind of landscape of America. And in fact, I think I relied on some scholarship that I think is pretty accurate. It's, it's really hard to know because we just don't have a ton of records at the time period. But I think from what we can know, we could say that of those 3,228 congregations, it probably meant that around 50 up to 70 or maybe 80% of the colonists were actually, um, I forget the word I used. It wasn't churched but uh, church ad ad adherence, meaning you either uh, went to church and weren't a member because there's whole kinds of things like to become a member at a church often meant you had to be baptized and you had to have a conversion and you had to take communion and then you had to pay for a bench or like a pew and add all these layers to it. It actually prevented a lot of people from becoming full membership. So if you just look at membership in the, in the 18th century, it's going to look like very few people went to church, but a ton more people went to church than uh than actually were members so well, i think look go, go thing, ahead one other thing that might be relevant to that i'm remembering reading a book by uh, nathan hatch the uh, democratization of american christianity and he, he focuses a lot on the uh, baptist and methodist circuit riders in the 18th century on the frontier and i i my uh, i have a i don't remember how many greats but a great 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 grandfather of some number of greats uh, who was one of those uh, circuit riders in kentucky and uh, but I remember him describing that as just those folks are not going to show up as on members of a church, but they are when there is a visiting preacher who is ready to preach, to baptize, to serve communion, to marry, to bury. If he's there at the right time for the burial, like they're, they're going to be they're Christians, but there's not church in the quite the same way that we think of today as a first uh, first Baptist church or uh downtown methodist or whatever like they, they don't have they didn't have those but these were still uh, these were still christians and baptists and methodists who were partaking of uh those church ceremonies when when they were available so that those two would not show up in those original that original research you're talking about from the, yeah the that's correct okay. and, and it's you know it's also the case that america even by the late 18th century was in some ways a frontier um people you know there was a lot of westward expansion and you have you know, a lot of people who moved out to the frontier where there weren't, there weren't churches yet. They just, but they were still Christian. And, and I think Tocqueville has this little uh, reflection where, you know, somebody visits someone out on the frontier and along with, you know, like their Shakespeare's, their Bible. And it was like, those were the books that they had. And they, it was a Christian people, even if there wasn't a particular church building and community to, you know, keep track of their membership. Um, and then the second, I'll say real quickly, the rest of the presentation at ISI, the second part, I focused on some of the political institutions and principles uh, that were explicitly religious and explicitly Protestant. And to do that, I looked at state constitutions. So state constitutions are always ignored. Um, 
it's just harder to find them and to go read them on your own than it is to just read the Declaration and the Constitution. That's a lot easier. Um, but it's really interesting when you read, say, when you read Joseph's story and his commentary on the Constitution of the United States, I think it was 1833, um, he talks about how the National Constitution, the U.S. Constitution uh, that was ratified in 89, you know, written in 87, um, it presupposes all the state constitutions. There's no legis, there's no, um, you know, there's no Senate without state legislatures because originally before the set, uh, before amendments, the 17th amendment, there was, um, you know, state legislatures elected the Senate and the electoral college itself comes out of state electors and they elect the president. So there's no Senate, which means there's no Congress and there's no president, which means two entire departments cannot function without the states having previous existence as political entities. So you really have the state constitutions and the states as independent republics pre-exist the constitution, the constitution presupposes them and references them throughout. So if you just read the US constitution without reading the state's constitutions, you're actually missing the majority of the constitutions at the time of the founding. In fact, there were 14 constitutions. And if you wait until uh, I think it, I forget, was it Connecticut? No, it was Vermont that joined the Union in 1790 or 91. If you wait until Vermont, there's actually 15 constitutions originally by 1790 that go into the entire American polity. So what I was doing was saying you should look at state constitutions because moral, religious, economic um, law was was left to domestic matters were left to the states. And so any kind of explicit religious establishment or religious regulation or test, religious tests for office, religious exemptions, religious liberty and so forth, this was going to be found mostly at the state level, not at the national level. So I looked at New Hampshire's constitution um, and uh, let's see, it was 1784, I, I believe. Yeah, there was a previous one, uh, but this one, the 1784 constitution is more exhaustive. And I won't go through all the issues, but basically, uh, you have religious liberty affirmed and religious establishment affirmed at the same time. So these things were not in tension with each other. They, mm. they believe you could have religious tests for office. You could have taxes for to support religious ministers. You could have kind of a generic uh, Protestant establishment, but you could also have robust freedom of thought and worship and exercise of that religion within such a establishment um and this establishment was kind of known as a, a quote-unquote general assessment where each denomination could pick their own minister for their local area or parish and then pay taxes to support that that minister um and there was even you know there was uh uh is explicit mention of protestant ministers so it was understood in say Massachusetts and Connecticut and, wow. and New Hampshire, these, this was a Protestant people, a Protestant polity. Um, and you have like generic language of religion and the deity, which matches similar religious language and say um, political sermons and election sermons. So this is a huge point that people miss. When they hear religion, they just think world religions, Buddhism and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism is just as much included in religion as Christianity or Judaism. Well, actually, when the founders were talking about religion, they really meant sects or denominations of Christianity. That's what they actually meant. And they talked about this Christian Protestant polity in terms of the deity, which is also how ministers would talk about uh, Christianity in relationship to civil government. So you have, you have some scholars often secular scholars who go to the literature and they see the deity mentioned and they think this is some kind of deism. It's just not. It's, they're just not familiar with the kind of religious discourse and language that was commonly employed at the time. So that was part of part wow. of the purpose of that section of the paper. Now, Ben, could you just because I, I suspect our audience is um, if, if they thought about this before, they would they would generally think that government should be religiously neutral. But you're describing a, a set of documents and a set of governments that were, uh, for whatever 
even if it was in sort of veiled generic language, there's an intentionality at putting theology somewhere close to the center of a, of a society. So why, why would that be the case? Like, why would New Hampshire in 1784 value a religious test for office? Like, why was that a significant thing then? I mean, certainly part of it does have to do with American, America's very specific, politi specific political tradition. Um, the colonies from 1607 and 1620 onward. I mean, even under like Virginia's charter from James I was a very explicit religious charter, it was a Christian charter. Um, and the Mayflower Compact in 1620, which is originally known as the Plymouth Combination, very specifically religious. So there was an understanding that we are religious people and we want to maintain our religious identity. And to do that, we need to have rulers who will acknowledge God. And so we need to elect uh, religious rulers. And so to do that, one of the mechanisms we put in place is a religious oath or some kind of you know, religious test for, test for office. Um, and you, I just was reading a sermon today in, in 1670 by John Davenport, where he talks about how to keep um, you know, the, one of the principles from natural law and divine law is that rulers are only legitimate when they rule justly. And one way to keep rulers ruling justly is by making sure that they have a just and religious character, a pious character and person who acknowledges that God exists and that there are certain, uh, you know, he has to live under the, the rule of law just as much as everyone else. And he's not exempt from that. And he can't arbitrarily rule for his own good, preying on the people and so forth. So part of it was this very long 150 year old tradition, but it also, you know, it certainly had to do with their entire political, political like conceptuality that there is a human law you might call positive law, but above that, it's derived from a natural law, and that itself is derived from or participates in the eternal law. And there's also the divine law there that sets down a pattern or some kind of paradigm which we can draw upon. And so, if you don't have recourse to a higher law, um, then you don't have any reason. Uh, you you open the you open up the possibility of all kinds of abuses. Like who's to say that if law is just a construction of the human will, then whoever has the will to power, just the raw exercise of their will and advantage for themselves, mm -hmm. can't, you know, issue edicts, kind of blank checks or fiats to just do whatever they want and say, well, I'm, I'm the strongest. I mean, this goes right back to Plato's Republic and Thrasymachus yes. and his yeah. argument for, you know, justice is the advantage of the stronger. And of course, that's what Plato is. I mean, that's what, well, Plato, but also Socrates is, arguing against the whole rest of the book. Can you have a just polity that makes for the happiness of the people and of man himself, and that is intrinsically good and that's done for the sake of the good and not merely for the sake of some utility or advantage? Um, and so the Americans are really, they have, they've chosen the Socratic way and rejected the Trisimachan way and also the way of Lucretius and Carnides and a whole Epicurean, a whole other tradition. So they have this long tradition, that, and this is why they go back to natural law and divine law. And you have, of course, they all understood if you have a natural law, if it's a law, there has to be a lawgiver. And the only sufficient lawgiver for a natural law is a divine lawgiver. Locke says this in his questions concerning the natural law. I mean, even, you know, even in sense, Rousseau admits that this has to be the case. In the last chapter on the social contract, he's like, yeah, we got to have religion. We got to have uh, basic bare theism, a belief in God and the afterlife and rewards and punishments. And this has got to come from the lawgiver to the people, even though his is a kind of positivistic conception of the state. Um, so that, that's, this is a short answer on, on yeah, why. Yeah, so, I mean, and that, now, th this question may not, may not be terribly fruitful because I think we, we may be talking about two different things in this question. So we'll have to, I'm, I'm curious what you do with it. Uh, I mean, I, my, my initial Baptist response to that is that what you're describing is reduce, you're, you're reducing religion to a social utility and rather than a, uh, a, a reality that is dealing with truth. Uh, and this still remains my biggest, I, I've kind of mostly gotten over my uh, instinctual rejection of the term Christian nationalism. 
Because so far, I have not, I have not yet met crazy Christian nationalists. I've met people who really just want to say, we we just want to love our country and love God, and we mean by that we mean Christian nationalism. And we can talk about that here a bit more in a minute too. But um, I am curious, like, how would you respond to somebody who would say, okay, I I see all of the social benefit to having a religious test and having people who will affirm that justice is rooted in the divine nature and truth is rooted in the divine law and all these things. But you're describing sort of a generic religion that is really disconnected from the revelation of the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ and the actual substantive content of a transformative religion that makes absolute claims. So yeah, how would you respond to, to that sort of pushback? Yeah, that's a, that's a good objection. Uh, it's one I've heard before. It's, uh, so I'll do my best to try to explain it. And that is, uh, I'll start with a Latin term, uh, which is the duplex cognitio dei, which is the two-fold knowledge of God that comes from reason and our experience and that has been given to us by God and then also by revelation. And that these aren't in conflict, but revelation, um, it corrects ignorance from by reason and it punishes all the the you know infractions that civil law can't punish and it perfects reason where it falls short or is astray um so basically yes the a lot of the discourse um regarding religion at the time of the founding seems very very utilitarian it seems like well you we want to implement a republican form of government which means that rule comes from the people, you know, from the bottom up to our rulers and the rulers are, you know, are magist- civil magistrate or representatives of the president or whoever may be are accountable to the people. Um, but to do that, to have the people rule or the people be the sovereign, um, you need a virtuous people um, because otherwise you'll get a vicious, you know, uh, a plebiscitary or an ancient democracy where there's just a roiling mass, a mob that's prey, falls prey or susceptible to a demagogue. Um, and so you need, you need virtue in the people. And the only way you can maintain or instill virtue is through religion and the kind of the guardrails that religion provides, namely that God does exist, uh, that we were created by him, that we have an immortal soul, that there will be an afterlife of rewards and punishments. And so therefore, you ought to behave yourself in this life for the sake of the afterlife. It kind of, and not only could you say that this is utilitarian and use of religion for the sake of a public peace or, uh, you know, uh, a political morality, the civil theology, but it's also very selfish because you care about your own well-being over and against, you know, your neighbors or the good of the, the community. So the basic response to this is that, you know, if you if you read Protestant political thought, and especially Puritan political thought in America, you, you will find that the Puritans were always engaged in this, this twofold knowledge of God, and the language and understanding of the role of religion in, say, ecclesiastical government on the one hand, you know, the gospel and grace, and then civil government on the other hand, reason and na- nature, that these were two modes, two ways, two ways of discourse, two modes of knowing, and they had two different ends and therefore two different means of function. So the ends of uh, civil government were temporal. So peace and the protections of life and liberty and the protections of basic rights and liberties and privileges and so forth. Um, and really the end there was also kind of the happiness of the people, which was is kind of the... Uh, the elevated horizon of a, a more uh, heavenly view of, of happy, of genuine happiness, like the genuine eudaimonia Greek concept of, of a full and good life. But um, on the other hand, ecclesiastical uh, government uh, dealt with the gospel and uh, the teachings of scripture. And it did have a heavenly end and the means were grace, not nature, not reason. Um, and so when, so for example, if you go back to John Cotton in his 1663 sermon, a discourse about civil government, he makes a very clear distinction. He says like in a, in this Christian communion, what you might call the corpus Christianum, this kind of Christian communion, 
you have, this is the genus and you have two species of government. You have ecclesiastical government and you have civil government. And he says, uh, they have the same origin from God and they have the same like end, the glory of God. Uh, but they, they disagree in the same subject too. man is the subject of both governments. Um, but they have completely different ways of functioning. So for example, civil government treats man by nature being reasonable and sociable creature who's capable of civil order and is the subject of civil power in the state. So that language of nature and reason and civil order and power in the state. And then he says that uh, in, in ecclesiastical government, man is treated by grace and he's called out of the world to fellowship with Jesus Christ and with the people and is only subject and is the only subject of church power. And so he, he even he is engaged in this distinction in language and the distinction of how he treats man. So even the Puritans would say that civil government kind of has, by God's design, a social utility. That's its purpose, but it doesn't detract from ecclesiastical government as long as you continue to have the ecclesiastical side of things there. So if you have government by grace and government by nature, the civil and the ecclesiastical side by side, both of those working in tandem as a two kingdoms under a corpus Christianum, then you can say government can have a social utility without, you know, having a secular state. Okay. Now I will freely confess, I think you know your Puritan authors far better than I do. So I'm not going to try to discuss this in terms of the Puritans, but... This sounds very similar. I've recently, I had a project recently that took me through a few chunks of uh, Augustine's City of God. And if I can, I just want to see if I can put this in terms of Augustine's argument. Tell me if I'm following your line of thinking. You're suggesting that if, um, if Christians are in charge of the city of man, that there is a certain level of social utility that they can gain that secures the goods of peace and prosperity through the application of Christian beliefs using the tools of the city of man, that does not change the temporary nature of these earthly kingdoms and the difference between an eternal salvation that is properly found through the city of God. But it does make the city of man better for the people who otherwise would suffer under the rule of tyrants and pagan kings. Is that roughly in alignment with what you're saying or no? The idea, yes. The language, and description of Augustine, not quite. So for Augustine, the city of man and the city of God had to do with ordered loves. So the city of man was a love that was ordered, kind of this uh, libido dominandi, this lust of the flesh that wanted to rule over other people, whereas the love of God was this Christian charity. And actually what you have with, with two kingdoms in Protestantism and even in Puritanism is you have all of it's the city of God, but two different uh, governments, two different kingdoms. You have Two, two different orders or way or powers and ways of ordering yourselves within both. So even in this, even in civil government for Protestants, you still have a, this is not some kind of lust of the flesh or the power to, to dominate and rule other people. It's still a civil polity that's ordered toward God in the sense of I am a Christian or I'm a civil magistrate. My duties and my responsibilities and my rights come from God. I am created by him. I have an eternal end. But God has designed civil government as an ordinance for us to have social utility here on earth. Why? Well, because the church is dependent upon a basic social mm -hmm. conditions. There are material goods because God created us as enfleshed human beings. And he himself came down to be a human and to be incarnate. And, and in the future, Revelation speaks of heaven coming down to earth and the earth being created anew. So God wants us to be physical creatures. Okay, so he, he wants a temporal order. He wants a physical order. He made us to live physically in a body, yes, as spiritual and ensouled beings. So there is there has to be a kind of uh, social utility or practical material goods if the spiritual is then ignored or eviscerated or uh, left out, then you have this undue, grotesque focus on pure material life um, and a meaningless death and extinction. But you don't, you know, if, if you keep these, the spiritual and the, and the scriptural side of things, there's no need to go that way. You can still keep civil government as a good, a, a temporal, 
a physical and material good, something given by God to mankind that mm-hmm. even aids the church. I mean, the church flor- can, the church can supernaturally be preserved in times of persecution by God. But the ordinary thing, the ordinary way of things that God prescribed was that the church and the civil government would work in tandem side by side. And this is this this gets to the very idea of the two kingdoms, how these these civil and ecclesiastical government is meant to you know, work in tandem and cooperation. And that is that the civil government provides a lot of the material goods by which the church needs to function. You know, it needs a building and it needs private property and laws and regulations and utilities and things like that. I mean, like if every single Sunday you had to build a new church building from the ground up because it got burned the last week, that week, you wouldn't really be able to worship very well. You wouldn't even bother to have a church building. Um, at the same time, the ecclesiastical government is both the spiritual and the moral discipleship for the civil magistrates that are leading the political community. And this is what you find implemented in, say, Puritan Massachusetts, is you have these regular election sermons every single year in which a minister was chosen to go before the Massachusetts General Court, which was the governor and the legislature, and to give a sermon to them on their duties to be good and just magistrates before God, and that they had to rule for the, the sake of the good of all, and that they had to abide by the moral and spiritual discipline that was given to them by the church. So you, these two can work in tandem within the city of God, within a properly ordered soul that's worshiping God. Well, uh, Ben, you make a compelling case uh, as we're as we're uh, as we're coming to a close. I do want to ask you if you uh, let's let's think about the present because. Uh, we've been looking at Puritan America, and that's that's obviously three, four hundred years ago. Um, America has shifted quite a lot uh, demographically, religiously, politically uh, in the previous 200, call it 250 years. Maybe we could take 1865 as a pretty big change point in American American polity. Um, one of the big moments that I think of when I think of American religious history is Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist. I mean, he's the that's where the phrase separation of church and state really kind of enters our political lexicon. And it really comes up I mean, anytime anything even close to what you've been describing gets brought up in the present day, even if, I mean, this, this was all over the, uh, the, the Supreme court case about whether or not you could have prayer in public schools. I mean, it's like, is, is, is it comes up uh, every few years with the see you at the poll rallies and whether or not it's legal for children to get around to school and pray for God to bless their schools even as as generic a way as possible. Uh, so at what point, so I guess I'm, I'm coming around to ask a twofold question. Um, first, uh, to what degree do you see a possibility of kind of getting back to some of what you've been describing from Puritan America, where there, there is a closer connection between church and state, maybe not in lockstep, but even at least less antagonistic than it has been. And secondly, if we were to move in that direction, what benefits would we would come to our society? Uh, yeah, great questions. Um, so I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast that, you know, just in passing, that we're kind of dealing with return of um, paganism, a kind of neo-paganism. Um, and we even see this. I, I just read an article last week about um, some satanic temple going up and supposedly this falls under the religious liberty and religious plurality in America, which is absurd. I mean, like even Locke in his letter on toleration says atheists can't be, uh, you know, uh, broked in his polity, let alone Satanists. Um, so we're far away from Lockean uh, America or something like that. But uh, yeah, we're dealing with neo-paganism. And one of the problems is, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last five to 10 years about the deficiencies of liberalism. And liberalism, of course, is highly debated. What is that? Uh, stay tuned because um, I'm going to be doing a, a multi-part series podcast on liberalism pretty soon with a couple guys. Um, you want to drop the name of that podcast or you're going to keep it secret? Uh, keep it secret for now. Um, you'll, you'll see it when it comes out. Perfect. But, Perfect. Uh, but you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the criticisms of liberalism is that it is a kind of secular polity that looks for this lowest common denominator of uh, agreement on the, and, and it, you know, as, as, as America gets bigger, we get more diverse. The denominator keeps getting lower and lower and lower until 
you can have something like a satanic temple as part of the religious polity of America, which is just crazy. So I think actually the solution, and it's not a solution. There's no way we can go back to 1776 or 1789 or 1865 or even 1946, the year before Averson versus Board of Education was decided by the Supreme Court that ripped uh, prayer out of the public schools. You can't go back there. The kind of the cat's out of the bag and we're going to have to move forward. And the, the way to move forward, though, is for Americans who have who have a sense of a loss of something deep and historic and traditional to understand that the core of, of American political thought is a covenantal politics. This isn't some kind of rugged individualism that says, I'm going to pull myself up on my bootstraps and I'm going to take my backpack and my horse and I'm going to ride across the West and do it all myself. Yes, there is a, there is a kind of strain of that in America because it was a frontier nation, a frontier people that were constantly expanding and it had to have a lot of individual virtue and strength and, and rugged manliness in order to survive. But a lot of that strength and manliness and virtue was actually took place within covenant communities. They understood that we're social and political beings and we can only survive that way. So going forward, you know, America is not going to be able to come back together as one people. What's going to end up happening some way or another is that we have already fragmented into multiple peoples. And the question is just how long and in what way will we then kind of redraw the boundary lines politically, socially, culturally, morally, religiously, and either, uh, you know, fracture into multiple Confederate states or nations or something like that, or just, or even we could have a kind of return to a federalism mm -hmm. in which the, the federal government is stripped of its kind of overweening bureaucratic oligarchic uh, status power now, and you return a lot of the power to individual states or um, kind of con confederative states. You could have like a southern block that of states from Texas to Florida that kind of see themselves as a common people in communion and they kind of govern the same way, whereas like Washington, Oregon and California can do their own thing. Um, so I think the, the solution is that not only do we need to start thinking about these regional ways of life, and this is these can be substantial amounts of people like 50, 80, million Americans could easily fit in the Texas to Florida quarter. Um, and you could have a covenantal way of life come back and to, and, and to, to overcome the secular and kind of uh, uh, the secular in that, that liberalism brings this kind of sapping of the strength and a material focus that leaves you empty or, you know, I'm just, I get DoorDash and I watch Netflix and, I do my OnlyFans thing and that's, that's my life. You know, it's like, it, it, this is so innervating. It's so, uh, you know, just destructive to the human soul. You have to actually bring a conscious religious political polity back. You have to have what Russ Arena would say, a return of the strong gods. You can't, you have to bring the Christian God back into the polity and say, as the governor of, of Florida, I, Ron DeSantis, am going to once again seek to have a, a general, uh, you know, establishment of religion in this state. I was, I was waiting for you to say Ron DeSantis is going to call for a Protestant Florida. And I was like, no, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do it, but he could. <laughs> now, to do this, you would have to reverse or you'd have to, to tackle head on the uh, doctrine of incorporation, which strips the uh, kind of the moral and religious uh, rights of states to be able to rule for the good of their own people and says, no, no, we're going to take the uh, Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments through the, the uh, due process and um, and uh, privileges and immunities and uh, liberties clause of the 14th Amendment. And we're going to, uh, as the federal government, as the Supreme Court, we're going to tell the states that, no, you can't have uh, establishment of religion or moral legislation because this violates someone's you know rights as found in the First Amendment. But of course, the First Amendment just says Congress shall not, not you state governments shall not. Um, and so there's there you, that would mean a return to a kind of original federalism, which you could have if you have a national government that becomes so unwieldy and so tyrannical that it collapses on it in and on itself. Now we would go through a period of a state of nature, which would be extremely unsettling you could have you could have anything come out of that you could have a red caesar you could have a blue caesar you could have hyperinflation 
in a worldwide depression. You could have lots of suffering before you came to the other side of either states or regional powers kind of coming back to that older covenantal and religious political fusion. But I think that's actually what we need because without that, the, 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 without the like religious and ecclesiastical government being closely cooperating with the political, the, the political loses its way, it loses its significance, it becomes tyrannical, it becomes unjust, it does all kinds of crazy things. I mean, can you imagine that even 50 years ago, if you had told uh, Americans that the, the civil governments in America would be chopping off the healthy genitals of their little boys and little girls, they would have said, no way in hell. That's, there's no way that would ever happen. Yet sure. here we are. And what's next? You know, like um, I have rights as a, as a furry or something like that. Like I have the identity of a dragon or maybe it's a minor attracted person. You, we see where this is going. It becomes absurd. It becomes crazy. It really does become the city of man that Augustine talked about, this libido dominandi, this lust of the flesh that just wants to just do whatever and defy God and to, to, to destroy themselves and destroy the people. So you actually need a, re a return of religion infused into the political mm -hmm. polity in order to bring back sanity and meaning and constraint and justice. Well, maybe to just wrap all of this up, I, I think you you started at the beginning. Um, one of your early answers, you took us to that, that famous line that uh, our our system of government is only fit for a moral and religious people. And I think if if that if that is true, then we are living through the collapse of that that religion and that morality. Uh, it's a it's it's at this point a bit of a trite observation, but I still think it's true that we we've been trading on the moral capital of previous generations for over 100 years now. And, and it, it seems to me very evident that we are running out of capital from previous generations to, to trade on. And at this point, we are fighting a bit of a recovery effort. Uh, and a, um, I, I'm very intrigued by this idea of a covenantal politics. Uh, on a future conversation, we might need to dive into your reading of the Declaration because uh, I, I do not read the Declaration of Independence as a covenant, but I'm very curious to hear why you do. Uh, but I think that's very interesting to go back to the idea of, uh, you had a very alliterative phrase I wrote down, Protestant political practices. Uh, if, if one of those practices is thinking of government, not in terms of a divine right of kings, but rather a people who are covenanted together under the living God, uh, that is that does give a moral center to to the culture. Um, I'm currently teaching a uh, Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. We're literally walking through Moses instructing ancient Israel about how exactly their relationship to the living God is to be the moral center of everything they do. And I, I do not in any way want to say that America is Israel, but I do think there's something key there about the idea that every society does have a center. And if it is not God, it will be something else. Um, you mentioned Rusty Reno. He, he came on my show back in season three and talked about his book, Return of the Strong Gods. Uh, he makes a fascinating argument that in the absence of the true God, uh, the old pagan gods, the, the nihilistic gods, uh, best symbolized through uh, my favorite mythology of, of, of the Norse gods heading to Ragnarok, uh, those, those are what return. And uh, since then, I've seen other people pick up the same argument. Uh, Louise Perry had a great art article in First Things just a couple weeks ago about our repaganizing and the way that repaganizing really affects particularly our sexuality. That's the that's the the area that she's focused on in her writing and think public thinking. Um, I think somewhere in here too is uh, you, you mentioned the uh, our, our obsession with with niche identities and the way that can go awry. Uh, there's a previous episode with uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center fellow Nathaniel Blake, where he talks about the response to the uh, Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill and how that really triggered an awful lot of teachers. And I use that word intentionally because they were triggered because that law said something they thought was holy and sacred was now forbidden. And it was not a question really of whether it was a best practice or an educationally defensible procedure, none of that was really what was at stake. You had, that really was a religious response where the government was seen to blaspheme against their own internal covenant. So I am very intrigued at this idea that what we currently have in American politics, maybe this is a, this just might be a helpful way to think about our, our current division in the United States, is not that we are, 
it's not that we're just a, a, a unified country that's forgotten how to be polite to each other. That That's the really empty phrase I keep, or empty approach I keep seeing people to talk about as if like, can't we all just get along? I, I don't think we can all get along because I think we are, as you described, we're actually aligning under different covenants. And if so, um, that that's why, because we have allegiance to different gods and there's, that's ultimately going to give diff, would give rise to different visions of society, each with its own center. And that that's th those are two things that aren't really going to to mix. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the if the goods toward which you are pursuing individually or as a people um, are contradictory or opposed, you know, one person says that the fetus is a blob of cells and not a human to be aborted for my own happiness. And another says, no, this is a person created in the image of God as his internal worth. You know, you can't, you can't make one people out of that. And this, you could just go right down the line on all these moral and metaphysical and theological matters. And, you, and the, the most important thing to recognize is what you hit at, Josh, is that it's not as if modern America is somehow non-religious. It's just that our religious, our natural religious impulses and orientation and design, you know, if the Westminster Shorter Catechism is right, that the chief end of man is, is the, the worship and the glory of God, like to, to know him in his presence, and it is right on that, um, then, you know, even a secular polity is going to find some substitute for that which is exactly what Joshua Mitchell has argued in his uh, book, America Awakening, is that all of this like wokeism and this identity politics and so forth, it's just a secular version, a secular religion. That's all it is. They do have their own kind of covenantal way. They have their own uh, you know, mor morality, their own moral hierarchy, their own values, you know, their own concept of dignity and human rights and all this kind of stuff. It's a, it's a whole art. A kind of artifice, uh, this, this edifice of, of secular religion. And, and so it's, it's, but it masks itself as being, uh, you know, non-religious and being neutral and being, you know, scientific and rational. And so therefore you get Supreme Court cases that defer to this neutral secular framework and then pillory traditional religion without right. seeing that both of them are forms of religion. And so we have to kind of shake ourselves out of this slumber of just like, we're just going to have, we're going to have a national conversation. No, you don't. We've been having this national conversation forever. It's not going to work. We're talking past each other and it's time for political action, which is partly what the entire Christian nationalism uh, movement is about, is about going back to America's very explicit religious, Christian and Protestant origins to say that actually from the ground up, from the states to the national government, we were a Christian people and we had laws and constitutions and we had a habit, a practice that was very Christian. And it, if you rip that all away, you lose America. You can't have America without its Christian character and nature to it. And that's a lot of what the Christian nationalism discussion and project is about, is a re-energization of a very covenantal and Christian type of politics, which tries to get back to the the origin of America and America, what I think would be America at her best. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a long and short of it. Excellent. Well, Ben, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show today. It's been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I've, uh, I appreciate your, your willingness to, uh, to follow the conversation. Uh, where, where can people find and follow your work online? So yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at my handle is at Ben R Crenshaw. That's with a C. Um, I'm somewhat active on Twitter. I kind of come and go as I'm working on my dissertation. I find social media is one of those things where if you poke it, it'll blow up at you. And if you leave it alone, it'll just, you'll stay hidden and you can get work done. Um, otherwise you can do, you, if you want to read some of my writings, you can find me at um, uh, the American reformer is where I've written a few articles. Um, American mind. I wrote an article way back in the day I wrote on public discourse, mm. but um uh, I go back and I read those articles now and I'm like, ah, That's I've, a, grown up. I've grown yeah. up, I've moved on. <laughs> uh, I, I hate to break it to you, but the uh, the word I hear from folks who are decades further than either of us are is that uh, that only continues, that you'll probably look like, back at this in 20 years and be like, oh my goodness, how did I say that? Well, you know, maybe that's a good thing. We're we're I, willing to learn and to grow. So anyway, you can, uh, my most recent writings are about, at American Reformer. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Josh. Really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. You're a good host. Oh, uh, thank you for that. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Ben Crenshaw, PhD candidate in politics at Hillsdale College. 
If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. If you want to let me know what you thought about the episode, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Your host is Josh Herring. Madison Kay is our audio engineer. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.